we have a moral obligation not to support the animal agriculture industry. And of course, when we purchase dog and cat food uh, made with meat, that's exactly what we're doing, because this is a major income source for animal agriculture. So factory farms are breeding grounds for pandemics. That's one of the many good reasons to stop consuming products from factory farms. But what should we feed our cat or dog? We may well be vegetarian or vegan, but if we give meat to our companion animals, we're still supporting factory farms. And so is there something we can do about that? So in this video, I talked to Dr. Josh Milburn, who's a philosopher at the University of Sheffield. We talk about feeding our companion animals vegan pet food, pet food made from invertebrates and pet food made from in vitro or so-called lab-grown meat. We even discuss the option of feeding them in vitro human flesh. <coughs> I'm Catherine de Volder. This is Thinking Out Loud, conversations with leading philosophers from around the world on topics that concern us all. If you'd like to see more of my videos, don't forget to subscribe to the Practical Ethics channel. So for those of you who haven't seen my video with Professor Jeff Sieber about how our treatment of animals increases the risk of a future pandemic arising, it may be useful to first clarify the following. The current animal agriculture system is extremely bad for our health. Well, the problems with COVID-19 have really brought that to the forefront. So COVID-19 is a zoonotic disease. Um, it is a disease that has spread from non-human animals to humans. In that, it is like most pandemics. Most pandemics are zoonotic diseases. And most zoonotic diseases come from or can be attributed directly to our relationships with animals in the food system. If we want to prevent future pandemics and resolve these other kinds of human health crises tied to the environment, tied to uh, antibiotic use, for example, then yeah, we want to change the food system. We want to move the food system away from um, a food system that relies heavily upon animal agriculture. And the most straightforward way to do that, or it would seem the most straightforward way to do that, is to favour a plant-based food system. The first thing we can do as individuals is change our own diet, because the food system as it exists reflects the diets of us as individuals. So, of course, this question is about what we eat, our own food choices. But you're working on a really fascinating book about how we should feed animals, and in particular, our companion animals, or what most people refer to as as pets. So I think there's a really fascinating question there. So we can decide like, okay, I'm going to be a vegetarian or a vegan, my dog or my cat or my ferret, I'm still feeding it meat. So is that a problem? I mean, I think most people probably haven't even thought about that. And if you ask someone in the street, they probably would say, well, obviously not, because the difference is that we are humans, we can survive on plant-based food, but our cat or our dog can't. Would that be a satisfying answer? The cats and the dog need the, the meat and we don't? Lots of people assume that non-human animals or at least many non-human animals cannot thrive on plant-based diets. Now the reality is that's going to depend very much on the companion animal in question. So to take the classic example, there's a sharp division here between dogs and cats. Dogs, very much omnivores like humans. Cats, they are carnivores. So there are certain needs that they have. But of course, the mere fact that they are carnivores, that they are classified as carnivores, doesn't mean that it is somehow impossible for them to eat plant-based foods. 
So there are a number of commercial dog and cat foods available on the market and they're becoming more sophisticated all the time. And these pet foods, these dog foods, these cat foods have been developed to be nutritionally complete. Andrew Knight, who's a professor of uh, animal welfare at the University of Winchester, he runs a very useful website where he compiles all this data about the feeding of companion animals uh, using vegetarian and vegan foods, but also the health problems associated with uh, meat-based pet foods. So he's a great source, his website is a great source of information on the science behind this. Some argument that people might use to justify giving meat to, to their cat or their dog is that um, the, the meat that they're giving is just a byproduct of uh, meat made for humans. So it's not the case that animals are especially killed to produce meat for cats and dogs. So do you think that's a good argument in, you know, to justify giving meat to their pets? So the first thing to know is that it's not always the case that no animals have been killed, especially for the companion animal's food. So there's been a huge rise in recent years with so-called premium or human-grade pet food. This is often meat that could otherwise have been fed to humans or would otherwise have gone into the human food chain. And of course, a lot of people do purchase meat, say from butchers, to feed to their companion animals. Now, the second thing to say is that we can then start to distinguish again the, um, the difference between our kind of collective obligations and our individual moral obligations. So when it comes to individual moral obligations, certain people certain vegans and vegetarians, for example, might argue, and I think they have good reason to argue, that we have a moral obligation not to support the animal agriculture industry. And of course, when we purchase dog and cat food uh, made with meat, that's exactly what we're doing, because this is a major income source for animal agriculture. Third, if the world went vegan in 20 years' time, and all humans in 20 years were vegan, there would still be dogs and cats to be fed, but there wouldn't anymore be this animal industry that was producing these byproducts. So we would still have ethical questions to ask about the feeding of our companion animals. So it is possible that we are moving more and more towards a vegetarian and vegan food system. But at the same time, there are also further developments um, in the production of so-called in vitro meat. I wonder whether we could talk a little bit about that and whether giving in vitro meat would also be a good option um, for companion animals. We can produce meat using technologies very similar to technologies that have been used in the medical space for, for many decades. And we can take cells from living animals and then use those cells to grow muscle uh, cells, um, meat, in a laboratory environment. So sometimes this is called lab-grown meat. That has this kind of slightly unfortunate consequence of us imagining kind of scientists in white lab coats, when in reality, if this is being produced for food, it's something that looks a bit more like a brewery. It was only last month, that is December 2020, when in vitro meat was commercialized for the first time. So now consumers in Singapore can visit a restaurant uh, where this stuff is being sold. Meat that it tastes, looks just like meat for culinary purposes. It is meat. However, it's never been inside the body of an animal. It seems like at first sight, this could only be a good thing because um, it doesn't really harm any animals. But still, I mean, some people, um, and in particular vegans, have objections to it um, because they think, well, it still keeps the idea alive that, you know, there is us humans and then maybe our companion animals who um, cannot be eaten, who are the ones who eat meats. 
Um, and then there are the other types of animals um, who can be eaten. And, and the production of this in vitro meat, even though it doesn't directly harm animals, may indirectly harm animals by keeping this um, disturbing idea alive that there are these two categories of, of animals, uh, the ones that we can eat and the ones that we can't eat. The first thing to say is that it might be the case that drawing that line doesn't actually create a kind of hierarchy of value at all. The fact that we recognize some beings as edible and some beings as inedible might not mean that we think that the inedible beings are less valuable in some way. So let me draw a comparison. We currently think of other humans as good sources for organs, for organ transplant, in a way that we're quite disturbed perhaps by the idea of using pigs as um, sources of organs for organ transplant. Now that doesn't mean that we think that the humans are less valuable than pigs. In most cases it means the opposite. But that leads us to a kind of second response we could go down. Why should we take it for granted that we wouldn't be producing in vitro human meat? What's very interesting is that in vitro meat gives us a chance to reassess questions about the ethics of cannibalism or the ethics of producing human meat. That could be interesting when it comes to particular human individuals who maybe want to try human flesh for whatever reason. There's some very interesting cases of uh, people being offered the chance to try human meat and taking it up. But let's remember that I'm also talking primarily in this interview, not about human food, but about companion animals food. Might there be a good reason for creating human flesh to feed to companion animals. A group of Dutch philosophers, including Eva Mayer and Bernice Bovenkirk, have argued um, in a Dutch publication that perhaps we should be creating in vitro human flesh in order to feed to companion animals. And I found very anecdotally that a lot of animal activists who maybe are quite reluctant to support in vitro meat when it comes to the feeding of humans are more willing to support in vitro meat when it comes to the feeding of companion animals. And strikingly, they're more willing to support it still when we are potentially exploring creating in vitro human flesh to feed to these companion animals. Because then we are breaking down that barrier. We're breaking down that us and them. We're breaking down the idea of those animals as inferior and these animals, that is humans, as superior. So maybe just to end, for people who are watching the video and who have companion animals. What can they do now? What would be a good thing for them to do now? Well, the most important thing that they can do, regardless of the companion animals, is to go vegan themselves. The next most important thing, perhaps we might think, is to look at changing the diet of the companion animal. There's a lot of information out there have a look around online, have a look at, as I mentioned before, Andrew Knight's website. There's a lot of social media groups. There's a lot of misinformation as well. So it takes a bit of skill to sift through these things. But there's a lot of information out there about the ways that we can adjust our um, companion animals diets. What's really exciting is that there are moves in the pet food industry towards other kinds of alternative pet foods. So I've talked about in vitro meat here. There are also moves uh, coming from small startups, but even large pet food manufacturers. Purina, owned by Nestle, has recently made some changes in this area, towards pet foods that contain invertebrate animals. This offers another kind of interesting avenue that we could explore as a more sustainable, more environmentally friendly, more health friendly, more animal friendly route towards feeding companion animals. So while in the short term, plant-based food might be the best option, that's not always available to everybody for various reasons. But on the horizon, 
we have in vitro meat-based pet foods. And here and now, we have some pet foods which uh, incorporate um, alternative proteins based upon invertebrate animals as well. So there's lots of interesting options out there. Have a look around, explore. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the Thinking Out Loud podcast or to the Practical Ethics channel on YouTube.